0: Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Acts chapter 28, and we're actually coming to the very last two verses of the book of Acts. These uh, final two verses sum up uh, the Apostle Paul's basically his two-year ministry as a prisoner in Rome. So I'll begin reading in verse 30. Acts chapter twenty eight and as I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please listen in reverence and in faith. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, as we look at these last uh, couple of verses, we find, uh, I think, a pretty interesting description of what Paul was able to do during those last two years, even though he's a prisoner, even though he's in chains, even though he is still confined And yet, the Lord enabled him to still have uh, quite an incredible ministry. I wonder what was in his mind and his heart during those two years. Because this great man of God was neck deep in a long-lasting trial of being under Roman incarceration. For about four years total. Two years in Caesarea. Now two years in Rome. Four years where this great evangelist, this great apostle, who had a burning fire in his heart and soul to preach the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire, is now like a mighty eagle used to flying and soaring in the skies, now having his wings clipped. I wonder what's going through his mind. Unable to fly with the gospel, bringing the Word of God to faraway places. He was committed to taking the gospel and yet now he's confined to a room for the most part. Now like a caged bird instead of having the freedom to preach Christ and to travel wherever he wanted. I wonder what was in his mind. I wonder what would be in my mind. A lot of discouragement. A lot of depression. Because sometimes though we may not end up in prison, we all have our own kind of prison experiences. Maybe there are financial issues, health issues that just seem to linger on and on. Troubling circumstances in our life that just seem to never go away. And what's in our mind? What do we think about? Are we prone to discouragement and depression and anxiety and stress? Which we all are, for sure. But as you look at the, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, though his heart was to run with the Gospel, and yet he's confined within the cage of this incarceration His heart, his mind was on a level that enabled him to basically bloom where he was planted. We hear that expression. Wherever God in his providence plants you, bloom. And he was able to bloom in those circumstances. We find in in verse 30 that he's going to spend two years in Rome. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, just ends it there. We don't know what happens to him. If you want to find out what might have happened to the Apostle Paul after these two years, we'll come back next week. We're going to kind of deal with that whole subject and theme. But notice in verse 30, he's in his own rented quarters. Now understand these are not this is not a luxury apartment that he's in. Uh, he's still a prisoner. He's still in chains. But he is uh, having to—he is have some kind of accommodations that he's either paying for, or actually the church at Rome probably was paying for these rented quarters. But he's not in any way free; still confined. He's still a prisoner of Rome. But notice also—he was in verse thirty—he's welcoming all who came to him. Jews, we've already seen the leading Jews came to him. He preached the gospel to them, preached the kingdom of God, preached Jesus to them. And then most of them turned away and he pronounced that, that awesome judgment upon them from Isaiah 6. But also Gentiles, he welcomed all who came to him. He was a man who had done miracles in his life, he was a man who boldly preached the gospel. Many were attracted. They wanted to learn more about that. And he welcomed them all. In verse 31, when they came to him, he preached the kingdom of God. He taught them concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is a synonym for King, King Jesus. With all openness and unhindered. Meaning that he had great freedom and liberty to welcome people into his his room and to teach them and to preach to them. Again, he was still in unchanged, but I think the point that we see from this is no matter what your trials are, no matter what your prison circumstances might be, God can still use you. Whatever you're going through, whatever confines you, whatever restricts you, whatever takes blessings away from you, God can still use you. In those circumstances. Even in a dry arid desert. Where there is no rain. Hot. Tumbleweeds blowing all over. You still have cactus plants. That can bloom with these incredibly beautiful blossoms. Right in the middle of a desert. And I see that as the testimony of the Apostle Paul in prison. He's in kind of a desert, a prison. And yet, like the cactus that blooms, we're going to see amazing things come out of his ministry. There are two ways you can summarize his ministry. Uh, Teaching through word of mouth and also teaching through his letters that he writes during this time. We know he did did a lot of evangelism while he was there. Philippians chapter 1 tells us that even though he's a prisoner in Rome, that the whole praetorian guard had heard the gospel through his ministry. So every time they swapped out new guards, Paul would strike up a conversation with them, share the gospel with them. So he was continually evangelizing, ministering through word of mouth. And then as people would come and visit him, he would open up the Scriptures from the Law, the Prophets, and preach Christ to them. So he had a phenomenal ongoing verbal ministry for those two years that he was in Rome. He he was able to do this, verse 31, with all openness, unhindered. Which means that no one prevented him from doing it. He was able to... Uh, welcome anyone from the public that wanted to come in. So a wonderful openness that he had. But not only was he ministering in the cell, he was also ministering through the letters that he was writing. And there are four letters that Paul wrote during these two years of being incarcerated in Rome. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, And a little letter to Philemon. And those four letters give us a window into the heart and the mind of this man of God that enabled him, like the cactus, to bloom in the middle of a desert. In the middle of a prison, to to rise above the discouragement and to bear fruit for the glory of God. So, these four letters all indicate, as Paul's writing them, that he is still a prisoner. He indicates this in all four of these letters, that he's still in chains. So, we know that they were written during a time when he was a prisoner. And most commentators will say it's during the two years that he's in Rome. He was facing trial before Caesar. Possibly death. He didn't know. Caesar, Nero Caesar, who was the Caesar at the time, was pretty unpredictable. As as his time in in, uh, Rome continued on, he began to grow in a conviction that he would be set free. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But in the midst of this, we see how he's responding to having his wings clipped, being caged. Which I think if I was in those circumstances... I would probably get depressed pretty quick. But we see how he responded in this hardship. And it raises the question how are you responding in your trials today? We all have our own set of trials, right? In different areas, different ways. How are you responding to the hardships when your patience is worn thin? When your expectations continually get shot down? How do we persevere when our trials seem to linger on and on and just don't end? Well, let's see how the Apostle Paul survived that. What we're going to do is to, uh, amazingly, I'm going to try to walk through briefly all four of these letters. And we're going to just try to highlight some of the things that Paul was thinking about that he was writing to these different churches. And we can see the level of his thought life in the midst of his trial of being in prison. And through that, give us things to take our thought life captive to the obedience of Christ so that when we're going through our trials and our prison times and our times of discouragement, that we can think the same thoughts and be lifted up as no doubt the Apostle Paul was. Well, let's begin with the book of Ephesians. You might want to turn there in your Bible. And if you look at uh, the map that I have up, Paul is in Rome. And the letters to Ephesus, Colossians, and Philemon were probably all sent at the same time. There's a messenger, a letter carrier, or mailman, if you will, that delivers these three. The same guy delivers all three of these letters. And so they're probably written at about the same time. In the book of Ephesians, whom Paul had spent a number of years there previously. He writes this amazing letter. If you haven't read Ephesians uh, recently, you really ought to read it. It's an incredible blessing. The The book is broken down into basically two parts. The first three chapters are doctrine. The second three chapters are practical. The outworking of the doctrine. This is Paul's emphasis. He's always combining Theology, doctrine, with the practical implications of how it should impact our life. It's always important for those two to go together. If someone has doctrine without practical application, it leads to theological pride. That's not good. If someone focuses on the religious excitement without doctrine, it can lead to misled experiences. So, Paul is emphasizing the first three chapters theology, the second half, all on how it should affect us and be lived out. The theme of the book of Ephesians is that the multinational church of believing Jews and Gentiles is saved by grace and therefore should walk by grace. That kind of sums up the book. So, Paul's in prison. He's going through this difficult time in his life. And his mind is on the sovereign, persevering, glorious grace of God in salvation. So he's not all dragged down and all the woe is me. No, he's, his thoughts are lifted up to praise God for his grace in saving him. So if you walk through, actually you can, you can also break down the book of Ephesians into three basic concepts. Our wealth in Christ, which is the first three chapters. Then our walk in Christ, chapter 4 through half of chapter 6. And then our warfare in Christ. So our wealth in Christ, our walk in Christ, and our warfare in Christ. Kind of summarizes the book. The wealth of Christ is glorious. You start out in verse chapter 1, verse 3, down through verse 14. And this is a treasure field of gold theological gems. He starts out by centering on God's sovereign election before He created the world. He redeemed us through the blood of Christ to obtain an inheritance which God predestined us to. And He has sealed us by the Holy Spirit who is a pledge of that future inheritance. So here Paul is in prison and his mind is just in the heavenlies as he is contemplating and, and rejoicing in God's sovereign grace that chose him before the foundation of the world, redeemed him through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and will one day bring him to eternal glory. So his mind, his little body is confined in, in this cell, right? But his mind is from eternity past to eternity future. His thoughts are glorious on what God has done to save a sinner like Him. In chapter 1, verse 15, then he he, uh, concludes the chapter with one of his incredible prayers. If you want to learn to pray or pray better, study the prayers of Paul. This is one of the great prayers. It will teach you how to pray. And then in chapter 2, he takes us to (coughs) the largest uh, graveyard in the world where all humanity are born spiritually dead in sins. And then he witnesses the resurrecting love of God that takes these spiritually dead sinners enslaved to Satan, the world, and their own flesh And He raises them up. He makes them alive. He seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. So He he brings us through this graveyard. And then He sees the miracle of the resurrecting spiritual life of God. In chapter 2, verse 11, He then talks about the ruins of the largest and highest wall ever to be torn down. No, I'm not talking about the Berlin Wall or the Wall of China. This is the wall. This is a covenant wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. It was a covenant wall that said that Israel was separate and distinct. The Gentiles were outside of the covenant. And he glories because he was the, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And he glories that Christ Jesus, when He came and shed His blood on the cross, tore down that wall so that now believing Gentiles can flood in and receive the blessings of Israel. Read that section on your own. Chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12. He describes how the Gentiles who once were separate from Christ Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without God, without hope, now through faith in Christ are fellow members, fellow heirs of the body with believing Jews. It's a glorious passage. So that Paul now is ministering to both Jews and Gentiles, and he's glorying in what God has done to break down that dividing wall, that barrier. So that now Jews and Gentiles both can be a part of the body of Christ through faith. And then he closes a chapter with describing one of the most beautiful buildings in all the world. The holy temple that the church has become in Christ. Whose foundation is the apostles and prophets. But whose very cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. So again, think of where his mind is. He's confined limited and yet his thoughts are on all this incredible wealth that we have in Jesus Christ and then he closes chapter 3 with another incredible prayer you got to study it you got to pray it for the blessing of God's people and then starting in chapter 4 we have the second half is our walk in Christ you have the wealth in Christ now our walk in Christ And basically in this section, he uses the word walk by telling them in verse 1 they need to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Walk in humility, love, unity, ministering to one another. This is how all this theology, this wealth that we have in Christ should now impact you practically. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Don't walk like the Gentiles in the spiritual blindness and depravity. Rather walk in love Walk as children of light. Walk in wisdom, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that will impact your marriage, husbands' relationships, and loving their wives, wives' relationships, and being subject to their husbands. It will impact your children, your parenting, slaves, masters. It will impact every human relationship. Walk in that grace that He's explained to them in the first three chapters. So you have the wealth in Christ, our walk in Christ, and then the second half of chapter 6, our warfare in Christ. And then he describes that we're all living as Christians in the most serious and dangerous battlefield of all battles, of all wars. We're up against the most deceitful, evil, and powerful enemy of all, that is Satan. And though our victory is guaranteed the enemy can inflict great damage to our Christian lives if we do not put on the armor of God every day. Put on the armor of God and stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So he concludes with this incredible exhortation of the seriousness of the spiritual battle that we're all in against an invisible enemy, a foe, that is crafty and can stick thoughts in your head. And the only way that we can stand firm against his temptations is to put on the full armor of God. So Ephesians begins by beholding the glow of God's grace from heaven and ends by fighting off Satan's arrows from hell. So it it, it kind of spans the spectrum. But notice again Paul's mind, he's in prison. But his mind is absorbed with God's sovereign, saving, and securing grace in Jesus Christ. And how that should impact our daily life. So that though our circumstances can bring us down, they can discourage us, they can make us feel our own poverty, they can make us feel hopeless. The Apostle Paul says, you know, you can bear godly fruit even in prison. If your mind is set on the things where Christ is if your mind is dwelling upon his grace from eternity past to eternity future and throughout every day of your life Christ is with you his grace is with you he's going to get you to the end and when we think about these great the wealth that we have in Christ then it can it can give you a great fruitfulness, even when you're in a time of prison. Well, from there, we move on to Colossians. Colossians is about a hundred miles east of Ephesians, of Ephesus. Paul was not the founder of this uh, church. Probably when he spent three years in Ephesus during his third missionary journey, he said that all of Asia heard the Word of God and probably the disciples that he was training, the young men in the ministry that he was equipping, probably went out and started the church at Colossae. It wasn't the Apostle Paul. He says he, they've never seen his face. And he only heard of their faith in Christ. So he was not the evangelist that took the gospel there. By this time, Colossae is kind of an insignificant little town. Probably small in membership as a church too. But still it received a letter from the Apostle Paul in prison. I think this speaks something just to the heart of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't always out to influence or cater to the the rich, the powerful, the big, the successful, the prosperous. He would write letters to little struggling churches as well like Colossae. The theme of the book is the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as head of all creation and head over the church. That's the theme of Colossians. In other words, Paul is in prison. He's surrounded by all of these difficult circumstances. He has a Roman guard always at his side probably cuffed to him in one way or another. And yet, his mind was set free from the shackles. His mind was focused on how great and glorious Jesus Christ is, how supreme he is over all other authorities and powers and dominions, even these Roman guards, and how he's totally sufficient to meet any and every need that you might have in your life. That's the book of Colossians. If you haven't read that lately, you ought to read the book of Colossians. It's glorious. One of the issues he also deals with in the book is um, in setting forth Christ and His supremacy and sufficiency is he briefly describes a person and the work of Christ. And thankfully, we just read that earlier in our Scripture reading. But in chapter 1, starting in verse 15, Christ is described as the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God the Father is like? Look at Jesus Christ. You want to look at how the Father acts or thinks or speaks? Look at Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the creator of all things, He's the firstborn from the dead, He's the head of the church. They might have first place in everything. And all the fullness of the Father dwells in Him. He must be God in human flesh. All the fullness of the Father dwells in Him. In chapter 1, verse 20, he describes how Christ reconciled all things to Himself through the blood of the cross. And then in the rest of chapter 1, Paul describes His ministry. The ministry of Christ through the Apostle Paul as he preached the Word of God and laid out the mystery of God to save Gentiles and to give them Christ as the hope of glory. Really, this is is the message that the Jews really hated the Apostle Paul for because he took the gospel to Gentiles and they thought they were so arrogant. And thought they were so special. No, we are God's chosen people. And when Paul would tell them, when they would turn a deaf ear to the gospel, and he said, okay, now I'm going to the Gentiles. That just made their blood boil. Because they had a racist spirit within them. Based on the covenant, but they didn't realize that that covenant is being now replaced by the new covenant. And when Paul now took the gospel to the Gentiles and the Gentiles started receiving their blessings, the blessings of the Holy Spirit, the heirs of Abraham, they are sons of Abraham through faith in Christ. They didn't understand that. And oftentimes the anger that they aimed at Paul was because of his Gentile ministry. And so he emphasizes that to them even at the end of uh, chapter 1. A couple of the uh, doctrinal issues in Colossians that Paul is dealing with is he's trying to warn them so they don't get deceived by false teachings. One of the the things that he was concerned about was the worldly philosophies that were coming into the church. And that's why he could say, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 8, see to it, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What he's talking about here is probably Gnosticism in its early form. That matter is evil, spirit is good. And the antidote to this is, no, walk in Christ. Establish your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Stay focused on Him. Because in Christ you've been made complete. You don't need anything. You don't need the Gnostic heresies, their ideas to influence your thinking. Stay focused and committed to Christ. He's your salvation. He's your victory. Don't leave him for these worldly philosophies. And then the other issue that he was warning the Colossians about is the the Jewish legalism that was coming into the church. And that was manifesting itself by, because the Jews wanted to go back to the shadows of the old covenant and make them mandatory for salvation. And they were also for sanctification. They would say, for example, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle in Colossians chapter 2. And Paul says all of that stuff, all of that legalism, all that ceremonial law, legalism that they're trying to bring back into the church. He says, it's of no value against fleshly indulgence. You can say, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste, but that's of no value. It's not going to help you spiritually in your sanctification. Stick with God's Word. Stick with Christ. And the antidote to that Jewish legalism, he says in chapter 2 16 and following, is just to hold fast to Jesus Christ. So everything is central around Christ Jesus and your relationship with Him. Starting in chapter 3, he now starts putting the practical side to all of it. He says you need to put on the new man, put off the old man. Do this as a way of life. He starts out in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Seek the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Consider yourself dead to sin. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Especially put on love and unity and peace. And let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Do everything that you do in the name of Jesus Christ. So those are some of the exhortations that he gives them in chapter 3 and on down into chapter 4. Again, he addresses the practical relationships of marriage, parenting, children, slaves, masters. This is how all this theology I'm exhorting you and teaching you needs to be lived out in your daily life. But seek the things above where Christ is. Focus your mind on the things above, not the things that are below. Now, Paul is in prison. He's incarcerated. He is confined within a little room. But look at where his thought life is. Just because your trials and difficulties are surrounding you and hemming you in, we can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and let our thoughts go beyond the circumstances. And in that way, we can still bear fruit like the Apostle Paul did. In chapter 4, he exhorts them to prayer and sharing their faith. And then he gives final greetings. But Christ is the grand theme of His letter to the Colossians. He is set forth as God in human flesh, the image of the invisible God, the Creator, the Sustainer of the universe. He's the head of the church. Indeed, He's the head of all things. He's all-sufficient. In Him, all of God's treasure chest of wisdom and knowledge is found. He's the source of your life. He's the source of your peace, your joy. And the hope of glory to come. It's all in Christ. So though he was going through very difficult trials. In his outward circumstances. Paul's mind was focused on Christ. And he wants the Colossians to do the same. So glorious is this little book that one scholar wrote. When I opened the chapel door of the epistle to the Colossians it's as if Johann Sebastian Bach himself was sitting at the organ. And, that, and what he meant by that is when you, when you read through Colossians, it's, it's just like in a sense the, the music of the Hallelujah Chorus is going on because Christ is so eminent. He's so precious. He's so all-sufficient for anything that comes up in our life. He can not only save us from our sins, which He has... But He can save us from all the anxiety and the worry and the discouragement that comes our way as well. He is supreme. He's sufficient. You need nothing else other than Jesus Christ. You ought to read the book of Colossians. It's wonderful. The next little book is Philemon. And the one Philemon was one of the brothers who lived in Colossae. And he was in the church of Colossae. And basically what this little book is all about is that Tychicus, the guy that's carrying, he's Paul's personal mailman. He's carrying the letters to Ephesus, to Colossae, and also this little personal letter to Philemon. Now again, Philemon, the way this this little letter opens up is that Tychicus, who's bringing the letters, is accompanied by a slave by the name of Onesimus. So Onesimus is traveling with Tychicus. Now Onesimus is from Colossae, and he's a runaway slave. And his owner, his master, was Philemon. And apparently, when Onesimus... We don't know the circumstances, but he ran away from Philemon. He escaped. He was a slave, but he escaped. And somehow he made his way to Rome. And in the providence of God, somehow he connected with the Apostle Paul. He heard the Gospel and he was saved. And Paul refers to Onesimus as his child in the faith. So Onesimus was converted by Paul's ministry while he's in Rome. At this point in time, Onesimus, the slave, is a great blessing to the Apostle Paul. He ministers to him. He serves him in so many different ways. But, Paul is a man who respected the law of the land. And he respected Roman law. We're to honor the king. or to honor the, the laws of men. Uh, unless they tell us, of course, to disobey God. But he knew that Onesimus had some business he needed to take care of. He needed to go back to Philemon, his master, and report in and deal with whatever consequences there are for, for running away. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon, who is a believer, and he pours out his heart to him to deal with compassion. With Onesimus. And it's a very interesting little letter. But what we see from this is that Paul, though he was in prison, his heart was for another slave or prisoner, if you will, Onesimus. And he's so willing, he so loves this man who's come to faith under his ministry But he wants him to go back and to to do what he should do. He needs to go back to his master. And Paul writes a letter asking Philemon to deal gently with Onesimus and hopefully to let him come back and serve Paul to release him so he can continue to minister to the Apostle Paul. So Paul's mind here is concerned for others, even the least among them. Even a slave who had been converted. The Apostle Paul goes to the trouble to write this letter to just try to minister to this this uh, brother, this Anesimus. I think what's impactful about the little letter of Philemon is that troubles that we have oftentimes make us focus on ourselves and not on others. And what we see in the Apostle Paul that even though he was again, in these quarters, in chains. And you could, you could imagine that someone in those circumstances, we in our troubles and trials, oftentimes get very inward focused on my problem here, my pain there, my difficulty here. And it's just it can very easily just become self-absorbing. And yet Paul's heart was towards other people. So much so that he would write a letter just to help grease the, the rails, if you will, for Onesimus to go back to his master and hopefully make things right. He was a man who loved other people. I heard uh, one time of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great book called Spiritual Depression. And one of the stories he tells in there, I think it was in France, in World War II, there was a mental ward that was full of people with all kinds of psych- psychiatric problems. And then the war broke out. And suddenly there was a, an external problem greater than their own little problem. And he said that most of the people in that ward finally started acting better, thinking better, and most of them were able to leave the asylum or wherever they were because they got their their mind off their own little issues and on to a bigger issue. There's a war out there. There's people dying. And that actually brought healing and health to their mind. And I think in our lives as well, when we go through problems, we have a tendency to focus on me and mine. And one of the spiritual ways to get out of that is to focus on other people's needs and their problems. And then suddenly your problems and your concerns and your issues suddenly began to get smaller and smaller and smaller. You see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. Even when he's in prison. If anyone could have been depressed, it could have been him. Our troubles seem to make us too focused on ourselves. But he was focused on other people. And that leads us to the last, the fourth letter that he writes while he's in prison. And this is the little letter of Philippians. The theme of the book of Philippians is basically a thank you letter to the church there for the gifts, the financial gifts that they had sent him through his ministry, through the course of his ministry, and also to encourage them with some of the spiritual struggles they were having. He wanted them to stand firm in the faith, to be united in humble service with an attitude of joy. So there is some disunity within the church. There is probably some grumbling within the church. So he exhorts them to unity and to joy. Joy is one of the themes of the book of Philippians. If you've ever studied it, you know this. Fifteen times in these four short chapters, The Apostle Paul speaks of joy or rejoicing 15 times. Not only does he communicate about his own joy, he also communicates about the joy he wants them to have as well. So this is a book really that kind of has a theme of joy. But embedded within this book is some of the deepest theological truths of the humility of Jesus Christ and the exaltation of Christ that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. But that example, that glorious doctrinal statement in Philippians chapter 2 of the humility of Christ was to be an example to them to walk in humility towards one another. Not arrogance, not pride, but to walk in humility. Christ was the great example. The little book of Philippians is really a a wonderful book. And again, I'll tell you, if you haven't read it recently, you really are missing an incredible blessing. Um, In this uh, book, Paul is uh, talking about legalism and different things that the church needed to hear. But again, coming back to the main theme of the book that I'm going to emphasize in the minutes we have left is just this concept of joy. And I find that very encouraging because Paul was in a very unjoyful circumstance. And yet he had great joy. And he knew that the Philippians had their own trials and he wanted them to have joy as well. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and just look at verse 4 just for a second. One of the verses that he emphasizes this theme of joy. Chapter 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So he's exhorting them, rejoice. And rejoice always. Rejoice when things are good. Rejoice when things are bad. Rejoice when your blessings are just flowing over you. And rejoice when you feel like you're just stuck in the slew of despond. Find joy. And notice it's rejoice always. And it's rejoice in the Lord. That's where your source of joy comes from. It's in the Lord. It's not in how much money you have. It's not in ultimately <clears throat> how good your health is or bad your health is. It's not in other, your other outward material blessings. Yeah, they give us a measure of joy, right? I'd rather be... Healthy than sick, obviously. So there is joy in the temporal, outward blessings. But that kind of a joy you can lose. Right? You can lose it really quick. But if our joy is in the Lord, the Lord who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Lord whose blessings you can never lose, then your joy can be always. If you train your mind to focus on your joy being in the Lord and the blessings of Christ and who Christ is and what Christ has done for you rather than in all the other little temporal joys that are here today and gone tomorrow. So what is joy? Well, you can maybe define it this way. Joy is a deep and abiding inner confidence in the Lord that lifts our spirits. If you have joy, you're, you just your spirits are lifted up. But it comes from a deep and abiding confidence in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. So that in spite of our circumstances, in spite of Paul's circumstances, he lived with the joy that was in the Lord. It wasn't in his outward circumstances, that's for sure. They weren't joyful. But he had joy. So how do we cultivate this joy? This deep abiding inner confidence in the Lord that lifts our spirits. Well again because it's in the Lord. Paul in this little letter has given us some breadcrumbs to help lead us to the joy. That he experienced and he wanted the Philippians to experience. Look at verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. One of the things that ought to give us that joy is to know the Lord is near. And whether he's talking about the second coming of Christ or whether he's just talking about the presence of Christ, He's always near. He dwells with us. Christ said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And that ought to give you joy. Other people may forsake you. Your money may forsake you. Your health may forsake you. Your joy and other temporal benefits may forsake you. But Christ will never forsake you. He is always with you. And if you think about that, then you can have joy in that. Because He's the best friend that you'll ever have. He's the one who loves you more than anybody. So one of the things that caused Him to have joy was to know that the Lord was always with him. Also, secondly, to meditate on your blessings in Christ that can never be taken away. In this, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, gloried that he had a righteousness that came from God that qualified him for heaven. Not a righteousness of his own works, but a righteousness that he received by faith, a righteousness of God from God, from Christ, the righteousness of Christ. And that's what qualified him to enter into the presence of a righteous God. And that was a gift that could never be taken away from him. So the joy of his salvation that Christ has done was something that sustained him. Philippians 1.6 He says, I'm confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That should give you joy. Yeah, my sanctification is up and down. It seems like sometimes maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe He's not with me. But He says He will perfect the work. He is faithful to do that. And that should give us joy. One blessing of salvation we should meditate upon. Another blessing is heaven. Paul and one would rather depart and be with Christ. His sights were on the resurrection of the dead in chapter 3, the upward prize of the, of the call of God in Christ Jesus. And he gloried that his citizenship in chapter 3 was in heaven, and that one day he would be transformed to the likeness of Christ's resurrection. Look at the end of chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. So, by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. That's where His mind is. He's in prison, His wings are clipped, He's aged. And yet he's looking forward to that day when Christ comes back and Christ will transform His physical body, whether it's in the grave or still alive, into the likeness of His own glory. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And it was that that gave Him joy. Because no one can take that away from you. Christ has shed His blood to save sinners. So that whoever comes to Him in faith can have this gift of heaven and the joy that it should produce. And then the third thing that we should meditate on to give joy is not only the nearness of Christ, the blessings of Christ, but just the sovereignty of the Lord over all of our trials. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, "...be anxious for nothing, for everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Why, why with thanksgiving? So I'm praying over a trial. I'm praying over a hardship. I'm praying over a difficulty that I have. Why should I pray and give my, my request with thanksgiving? Because I know He's in control. I know that He's still with me. I know that He has a good purpose and plan for that. And that's why I can give Him Thanks because I know that He is sovereign over all these circumstances. And then I can have His joy and His peace as He explains in verse 7. God will supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So when faith grabs hold of these promises and these truths, then we can have this joy. If you do not have joy in your Christian life, It's because your mind and your thought life have drifted down to the underworld. And it's on the things of this life. And it's on all your temporal blessings or lack thereof. And the key to get that joy is to bring our our thought life back in line with the blessings that we have in Christ. And when our faith grabs hold of those blessings then we can have that joy and that joy is a safety net to present us from being dragged down into depression or deep discouragement. The joy is like a bobber. Yeah, it's like a fish that pulls on the, on the line and the bobber goes under, but then a bob, pop back up again. Normally as a fisherman is, is reeling in the line, but that joy is a bobber to your, to your soul. So that it can't be pulled all the way down into depression or discouragement, if we have the joy, because our thought life is on the blessings that we have in Christ. You know, Spurgeon struggled with depression, even though, I mean, this is Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, struggled with depression and anxiety due to money issues sometimes, health issues. Even in times of Spurgeon's greatest preaching ministry, he would get depressed because of his frequent illnesses and arthritis that he suffered with. And sometimes he, he got so discouraged, he, he would think of quitting the ministry. At age 19, he was called to one of the top three Baptist churches in London and moved into the largest building in town that could hold ten to 12,000 people, only to have someone shout falsely, Fire! And a stampede killed seven people in his church. And his grief almost caused a mental breakdown in seclusion and nightmares because of that. He wrestled with anxiety from the ministry, the burden of shepherding people's souls. And even his dear wife Savannah became an invalid at the age of 33. Because of all this Spurgeon. Grew prematurely old. At the age of 56, he had white hair, swollen hands, and he had to lean on a chair while preaching. Through all the experiences of Spurgeon, by the grace of God, he was still able to fight and see the beauty of Christ in his wisdom and the wisdom of his circumstances, and through that, find joy. It wasn't steady because his faith wasn't steady. Just like your faith is not steady and my faith is not steady. And sometimes we do lose our joy because my mind does wander off into all the woe is me and the trials and the difficulties. But when by the grace of God, our mind comes back and we celebrate in glory on Christ, The blessings that we have, the grace that we have, the salvation we have, the inheritance that we have, then that joy can be restored. So that Spurgeon could write, "I've seen the beauty of Christ that ministered joy to his heart," when he said, "Do do you know that God has beauties for every part of the world?" And He has beauties for every place of experience. There are views to be seen from the top of the Alps that you can never see elsewhere. Aye, and there are beauties to be seen in the depths of the valley that you can never see on the tops of the mountains. There are glories to be seen on the high ridge of Mount Pisgah Remember, that's where Moses went up and saw the promised land even though he wasn't able to enter in. There are glories to be seen on the high ridge of Mount Pisgah. But there are also beauties to be seen in the deep sorrows of our Gethsemanes. And as... God gave Spurgeon grace to see the beauty of God's wisdom and grace in all of his experiences. He could fight through his own anxiety, fight through his own depression, and find the joy of the Lord when he tuned his thoughts to the blessings that he had in Christ. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 so that no matter your trials, you can have joy. Paul was close to five years under this Roman incarceration. And one might think he would have suffered many bouts of discouragement. Maybe he did. I don't know for sure. But by the grace of God, as reflected in these four letters, you saw a buoyant faith and confidence in Christ. A mind that was fixed on fighting to stay to stay upon the things above where Christ is. The blessings of Christ. The salvation of Christ. So that his prison letters are full of joy and peace and patience and contentment knowing that God is sovereign. We would not have these spiritually and theologically rich letters if Paul didn't go to prison. We can be thankful for that. His hope in Christ... His confidence of the glory to come overshadowed the gloominess of his circumstances and gave him an uplifting joy that even his chains could not pull down. And although he was in the hands of Caesar, and you're in the hands of your external circumstances many times, but even more than that, Paul understood, and so should we, that we're in the hands of God who loves us and works all things out of the perfections of His will. So, this is what was going on in his heart and mind during those two years in Rome. Circumstances that would certainly discourage many of us, bring us down. And yet, because of where his mind was, he was able to soar like an eagle, though he was inside of a cage. And may God strengthen our faith in our day of struggle and trial that we might have that same faith, that same joy that Paul had. Well, Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we do uh, thank You, Lord, for sending Paul to prison. I'm sure it was not a joyful circumstance with many trials and difficulties that he had to endure because of it. But Lord, through that, we find the testimony of a man who found his, his joy, his peace, his contentment in Christ. And in that, he gives us a godly example for the struggles that we face in our life. And Lord, we thank you that even though we may find ourselves in trying circumstances, that you can still use us, Lord. You can still use us to minister to other people. You can still use us as servants of your kingdom to share the gospel with those that we come in contact with to be an encouragement to the brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, and give us joy as we fix our minds upon these great truths found in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. Such a treasure chest to encourage our faith that we might walk triumphantly over our trials in the peace and joy and contentment that Jesus Christ can give. So Lord, help us to read these letters often, meditate upon their truths, and be blessed by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.